Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are hopping into the world of Taoist sorcery, Hong Kong monsters, glutinous rice, martial arts, and and much more with our very first Zhangqi movie. Uh, I've been wanting to do one of these movies for a while because I had never actually seen a Zhangqi film and uh and and I was aware of them for a while having I guess I've seen like pictures of them on the internet. Uh so so this has been in my mind for years and finally we got to see one. Today we're going to be talking about Mr. Vampire. Yeah, I'm excited as well because I I think I was in the same boat as you. I I knew about Jiangxi. I knew they they existed in in Chinese folklore as as being this kind of vampire, kind of zombie zombie creature with with unique characteristics all their own. But I'd never watched a Jiangxi movie, uh, though. Interestingly enough, right uh, this was before you brought up the idea of of of, of doing one. Uh, I had picked up the new. Dungeons and Dragons book, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, and it includes a domain in it inspired by Chinese mythology and folklore. So it includes stats for Zhangxi monsters. Uh, it's a, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, it's a ninth level undead entity with the power to drain the energy of its victims and a shapeshift. So Zhangxi is both a class of uh, Chinese mythological monster and a specific genre of especially 1980s Hong Kong martial arts comedy films. That's correct. Yeah, it's and, and this is one of the big films. Uh, we started looking around like, well, which which Jiangxi movie should we do? And the the signs increasingly pointed to Mr. Vampire from 1985 because it's it was a huge hit. It was responsible for really popularizing it in uh, not only within uh, Chinese cinema and creating a whole subgenre, but also spreading out. And uh, it was very popular in in Japan and ultimately, you know, across to to, uh, to the West as well. So, and also, this is the one we could rent from our local video store, Videodrome. Yeah, these movies are not widely digitally available, at least that I could find. But uh, yeah, at but, least not right now. I feel yeah. like they have been recently, but um, I have to say, Amazon Prime used to be my go-to place for a lot of uh, weird movies, but I feel like they're selected collection is 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 not as expansive as it was just a couple of years ago. So Mr. Vampire is really a title that sort of grabs me by the fangs or by the fingernails as it may be uh, to mm -hmm. begin with. Uh, there's something a little bit cheeky about it, but also I think this is not a direct translation of the original title, which I think uh, in uh, the Cantonese original title was it translates to like hold your breath for a moment or something. Uh, yeah. And that, and the reason for that is because that's, that's one of the plot points and how do you avoid the Zhangxi discovering where you are and, mm -hmm. and draining the life out of you? Well, just don't breathe. And then it can't detect your presence. But Mr. Vampire, uh, that that also that also kind of works. It's it's not the name of a vampire in it, but it's referring to our main character, who is a uh, a Taoist priest whose expertise is the management and sometimes slaying of of uh, of vampires, and therefore he's Mr. Vampire in the same way that someone who comes and fixes your pipes might be Mr. Plumbing or Mr. Plumber. I was thinking of it more along the lines of Mr. Coffee, like he is a machine <laughs> that is designed to perfectly execute this function. And so in this case, our hero in the film, uh, the Taoist the priest uh, played by uh, uh, Qin Ying Lam, is the machine that perfectly executes the Zhangxi cycle. Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk for just a little bit about uh, the Jiangxi, uh, because some of you may be super familiar with this already. Maybe you've read the new Ravenloft book. And so, you know, you're like, I know all the stats, uh, Rob, you don't have to go into the details, but I will anyway, because it's super interesting. And I think it, it enhances our understanding of this film. Uh, even though this film is very much a horror comedy, it's not like it has, I think, you know, really deep things to say, but it is, it, it is a treatment of some of, of a monster, a monster that emerged out of Chinese history, out of Chinese folklore and out of real anxieties. So first of all, Zheng Shi literally means the stiff or the rigid dead. And, uh, and, 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 and the reason for that will become clear when we start talking about how they move, especially. So I'd, I'd love to just set the scene for you here, if I may. OK, let's get it. Imagine yourself out on a road, so frustratingly close to the walls of the city you've been traveling to, and yet night is falling, the mist is rolling in, and then up ahead you see several figures in the gloom. Who are they? Are they fellow travelers, perhaps headed to where you're going, or coming from the opposite direction? Maybe they're a patrol of guards from the city, and you even entertain the possibility that they might be bandits, but then they do something quite unnatural. They hop. They hop like creatures whose legs are bound or stiff with rigor mortis, uh, perhaps even forgetful of proper bipedal locomotion and forced to lunge themselves forward through physical space like a writhing worm stood on end. The creatures hop and they hop again ever closer to you. And as they get closer, you see that they are undead horrors dressed in robes from the Qing dynasty, decayed corpses burning with unnatural life. And as they hop, they reach out towards you with elongated fingernails. They gasp with bloody fang tooth jaws. And if they catch you, they will drain every last ounce of precious chi from your body. Ooh, I got the shivers. Yeah, I, 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 the, the thing about the hopping, really, the hopping uh, is key because it's yeah. such a vital part of, of the folklore. And yet at the same time, it can seem ridiculous because it is so unnatural. And sometimes it's hard for us to really like figure out like where does, at what point does the unnatural become the ridiculous? At what point does the ridiculous then become the uncanny? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I won't deny that it looks funny in the movie when they're hopping, and mm -hmm. it uh, clearly is supposed to look funny in the movie because this isn't like a straight horror movie. This is a horror comedy. Uh, but I can see how the hopping could be quite unnerving given the right cultural associations and if it were – I don't know, maybe if it were filmed from the right angle too. Uh, right. Because like you can get the funny aspects like it's kind of a sack race zombie, right? It's just mm -hmm. uh, the, the feet can't move independently. It's hopping up and down with the arms out stretched but on the other hand it symbolizes that th this body no longer works as it should in fact it is no longer really a human body but something else exactly so so that's the the zheng shi but as as most of you know from listening to stuff to blow your mind monsters don't just exist in a vacuum monsters always mean something and so i i was curious like i know a number of you are curious where does this come from? What does it mean? What is the hopping all about? Why does the rigor mortis seem to be so key to this depiction of the undead? And I, I ran across, I looked at a few different sources, and then I found this uh, paper by historian Juhi Su. And this, it's actually their Doctor of Philosophy dissertation at Washington University from 2019. But it's titled The Afterlife of Corpses, A Social History of Unburied Dead Bodies in the Qing Dynasty, 1644 through 1911. Interesting. So what can you tell us about these creatures? 
Okay, so while Chinese mythology and folklore is filled with various ghosts and monsters, obviously, uh, the Zhengxi seem to emerge out of a Qing dynasty crisis concerning the burial of the dead. So Su writes that numerous records from the 18th and 19th century discuss the problem of unburied bodies left on the ground without proper burial. And the, the interesting thing is these were not exclusively, say, the victims of war or famine or disaster. You know, something where even in the best of situations can overwhelm your ability to deal with the dead. Right. They were seemingly, for the most part, individuals who simply had no permanent grave. And this, Sue writes, was due to changing socioeconomic structure during this time period and the resulting imbalance between uh, population and arable land. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea here is that a family would need a secure claim to the land in order to bury a deceased loved one. And if a grave could not be obtained, then they were then the body would would just be left out or would be, uh, you know, abandoned or lost, um, you know, not necessarily like immediately discarded, but it might be put somewhere and then it would never find its way to a permanent destination. This actually plays into the movie. I hadn't thought about this, but in the plot of Mr. Vampire, though, again, this is a comedy movie, Mm -hmm. part of the incitement of the vampire curse in this film seems to be a dispute about over the land on which a body is buried. That there's like a dispute between this wealthy family, uh, uh, this, you know, this wealthy family with this businessman patriarch and a fortune teller who originally wanted access to some kind of burial plot. And the businessman bought it off the for- fortune teller seemingly with some kind of coercion for the, mm. for the purchase uh, because it was said to be a very uh, lucky place to bury a body that would bring, bring great fortune to the further, you know, the future generations of the family. Uh, but obviously the fortune teller who was forced to sell the land didn't like this. And so a dispute about land rights and the burial of the body seems to be at the root of whatever black magic causes the vampire to begin with. Yeah, and that that plays right into this this historical setting out of which it emerges. This idea that that uh, that land in which you can properly bury the dead and do the dead justice uh, is in short supply, and not everyone has has the access that they once enjoyed uh, to it. And while the um, Su writes that while the, the the Zheng Nan region was most impacted by this situation, it became an empire wide crisis because it wasn't just about the dead and and dealing with the dead, but a perceived cultural decline in funeral custom and and even a decline in devotion to to one's ancestors, which has enormous cultural significance. Well, this is another thing I would say in in Mr. Vampire. Uh Again, it's hard to say because the movie, I would say, is ultimately it's it's a light comedy. You know, it's light horror martial arts comedy. So it's not getting too serious about anything. But I also I, I kind of detect a strain of critique of modernity in it generally. And it's set during – so it was made in the 1980s, but it's set uh, during the, uh, the Republican period of China. So in the, yes. the first half of the 20th century. And in it, there seems to be a sort of a critique of, of a, a modern, maybe Western-influenced way of living. There's a very comedic police officer who yes. seems to embody all the negative uh, attributes of the police. Like yeah. he is abusive and stupid and, you know, is is framing the wrong guy for the murder, is not yeah. addressing any problems. And so there's this idea yeah, that the, the the government and the law is not maintaining any um, the necessary order and that this lack of order uh, also applies to our 
our honor to the dead. Yeah, and so the, the character in the movie who wants to have his ancestor reburied, which again is one of the inciting incidents in the film, he seems to be making decisions that could be – again, I don't know exactly the right cult- cultural way to read this, but I think it is to be interpreted as – He's making decisions that are somewhat disrespectful to his own ancestors in hopes of making money. Yeah. Okay, well, we're maybe sort of getting ahead of ourselves here because (laughs) we started getting into the details. But, Rob, what's the basic elevator pitch for Mr. Vampire before we hit the trailer audio? All right. When Qing Dynasty vampires rise up and cause havoc in early 20th century China, again, this is Republic of China, only the Taoist priest, Master Gao, and his two assistants can stop the evil. You know, you kind of get the sense that Master Gao would have had a better chance stopping the evil without his two assistants. (laughs) Well, it's hard to get good help in the vampire-busting business. Yes. Let's hear some audio. All right. So that is, I believe, from the original Cantonese trailer. So that is, if you if there's any language, any uh, dialogue in that trailer that you heard, that is Cantonese. Yeah. And um, I I recommend watching the film in Cantonese if you can. I listened. I watched about half of it dubbed and then switched over to Cantonese with subtitles. Yeah, about halfway through, and I I, I really enjoyed the original language more. I, I was going to say the same thing. I watched it uh, with the Cantonese audio with subtitles, and I think that's the better way to do it because there's a lot of the line delivery in Cantonese that is quite funny, even though even if you don't speak Cantonese, can't understand what they're saying. I would single out the main star of the movie, Chin Ying Lam, for some of his very funny, stern delivery of particular lines in certain scenes. Like, I really like the scene where. Uh, his his assistant who is turning into a vampire is saying like what's going to happen to me and he says your blood will stiffen and then he says what well, how what will happen when it stiffens and he says it will get hard and <laughs> it the, the the way he delivers his lines in the original language I think is much funnier yeah yeah um, and it, we'll get back to him but he is he is indeed great in this it's hard to imagine the the film without him because his character is at once stern and serious and heroic and capable and yet at the same time does occasionally look like a buffoon uh-huh. as is befitting of a horror comedy, but it's a careful line to walk. Like how do you yes. make your hero buffoonish enough, but also a capable action horror star? I, I want to come back to that theme. All right. Well, let's, let's start talking about the, some of the folks involved in this film, uh, because it does have a lot of interesting people in it. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the director who also was one of the screenwriters, uh, Ricky Lau. Lau was born in 1949, and Mr. Vampire is is his big hit. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. huge hit. So he went on to do, and is still doing, plenty of films in this vein, uh, including The Romance of the Vampires in 1994, and more recently, Taoist Priest 2021, uh, a film starring uh, Suho Chin, one of the stars from Mr. Vampire. Oh. This, who, this is a trend is, we'll see a lot. Who, who is Suho Chin in Mr. Vampire? He's the handsome assistant, uh, and, and we'll get to him in a second. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. 
he's good. Now, the, well, the, the producer on this film is, is also a huge name in Hong Kong cinema, though I'm to understand he was largely hands-off with Mr. Mm-hmm. Vampire. But uh, we have to point out that Sammo Hung was the producer. Uh, and I think everybody's heard of Sammo Hung. He's one of the, he's one of the biggest names uh, in Hong Kong cinema, certainly outside of Hong Kong, well, when you get into like, just international cinema. He's one of those people who you just look at a picture of him and you're like, that guy's the boss. He's the boss yeah. of something. Yeah, yeah. Legendary, rotund Hong Kong actor, martial artist, producer, and director. And um, yeah, he's he's been in been so many things. In fact, he was in one of the the other key films of this genre, the, the horror comedy, the Hong Kong horror comedy, and that was an Encounters of the Spooky Kind that occurred uh, uh, several years later. It was it was sort of the first big horror comedy, as I understand it. Oh, yeah. So I also wanted to see Encounters of the Spooky Kind. I haven't seen that one either. But is it also about Jiangxi or is it about something else? I am not entirely sure, but uh, one of the same writers was involved in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know that it has it at least has spooky stuff in it. It has encounters (laughs) of the spooky kind in it. Uh But I I sadly haven't seen it yet. It's really the next one I should see because it's it's huge and very influential. Uh Uh-huh. Now, I was reading in a book called Spooky Encounters, A Guilo's Guide to Hong Kong Horror by Daniel O'Brien. And in that, O'Brien says that, that Hung was in, uh, was, Sammo Hung was inspired by stories uh, that his mother told him uh, when he was a child, as well as a particular story from Pu Song Ling's Tales from a Chinese Studio, which uh, I was excited to read because uh, I'm, I'm really fond of Tales from a Chinese Studio. I have, uh, I, have the, I think it's the Penguin Books edition, which doesn't include all of Pu Song Ling's uh, stories and retellings of these various weird tales uh, from China, but it has a number of them. Now you sent me a link to a an ebook version of this that did have the story in it. And so I, I read this story. The one the story is called The Resurrect or no, not the Resurrected Corpse, the Resuscitated Corpse. Yes, I believe you're right. And it's uh, I was I was impressed. So the thing about Pusong Ling's stories is that they they vary wildly in tone. Mm-hmm. There are some where basically just he's, he's like, hey, um, this scholar from such and such city told me about this thing that once happened and it was weird. And that's the end. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my son and I enjoy reading them together. And occasionally they just stop abruptly like that. It's like a man saw a fairy in the woods. The end. Um, a man saw some fleas do a cool uh, trick or, or circus performance on a backpack. The mm-hmm. end. Other times they're longer. Sometimes they're just really grotesque and brutal, like a, a troll chews on somebody's skull and then they never find out what it was about. There's a lot of never finding out what happened. Something strange uh, happens and no explanation is ever made. Nothing is ever you know, really done about it. Other times they're humorous. Sometimes they're a little bit on the raunchy side mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in rare instances. Uh, but yeah, this one is, I think, an example of, of a story that is both terrifying in parts, but also ultimately ridiculous and humorous. Yeah, so the the basic story here is that there are four travelers who arrive at uh, is it an inn or a house that they're they're on the road and they get to some place where they really need to stay for the night because the the night has come on and the, they can't stay outside and there's no it must be an inn because basically there's no room at the inn and they they say okay well can you give us somewhere to stay you know we, even if we don't have our own rooms and so the uh, the homeowner or the innkeeper is like well okay you can stay in this room with my dead daughter-in-law's corpse that hasn't been buried yet right very very good very cool and this is of course getting into the idea you know like she hasn't been buried yet perhaps because they have they have not found a place to bury her 
Right. And again, getting into these big concerns about, you know, maybe bad magic comes on when somebody doesn't receive the right kind of ritual burial in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. So the four travelers go to sleep in the room. And then in the middle of the night, one of them wakes up and realizes that the body of the dead daughter-in-law is getting up off of the table where it's resting. And the the dead daughter-in-law goes around to each of the sleeping uh, travelers and breathes in their faces and the breathing on them. Uh, there seems to be something very sinister about this. Uh, but eventually the, the one traveler who's awake while this is happening gets up and runs out and the the dead daughter-in-law is very mad about him running away and she chases him chases him all the way to a monastery where he bangs on the door and begs to be let in and the priest is like i don't know who you are you can't come in (laughs) and so he's running around outside he hides behind a tree and then the the zombie lady attacks him but gets her arms wrapped around the tree did is, did i understand that right yeah like basically like he she reaches to the left and he ducks to the other side and then uh-huh. she reaches on that side and he ducks to the other side and they're just going back and forth it's yeah. like a it's it's very much a hong kong martial arts comedy skit and they do this until they're absolutely uh, exhausted the both of them even the corpse uh-huh. and then i guess the corpse gets the the bright idea i'll just reach out and grab him on both sides of the tree at the same time. But then what happens is her long, scary ghost fingernails get stuck in the tree. And so she's just stuck (laughs) to the trees. And the next morning, the authorities come and this uh, resurrected corpse is stuck to the tree with her fingernails in the wood. The end. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the great thing think, about the stories i think i think the last i may be remembering this wrong but i think the last line is something like the local governor made a report of the incident <laughs> yes they often often that's the form of these stories they'll often begin with saying uh telling you who told you this who told him this story you know to give it i guess kind of it gives it an air of uh, authenticity or it ends with something like that saying like where it was recorded yeah. and uh yeah uh, i i love it and then everything was fine so, uh, Mr. Vampire, not a direct uh, adaptation of that, but you can definitely see some of the connections there, some of the, you know, the comedic horror. Right. All right. So, uh, a couple of the screenwriters we're just going to blow through here kind of quickly, but they they were accomplished uh, screenwriters. There's uh, Chuck Han Sato, I believe it is, who... Um, wrote on some major Hong Kong films featuring stars such as Jackie Chan and Jet Li. Their screenwriter, Barry Wong, who lived 1946 through 1992, who worked on such films as Fight Back to School, starring Stephen Chow, and uh, two different John Woo films, Hard Boiled and The Killer, both starring Chow Yun-Fat. Oh, some of the most uh, famous of the recent, well, not that recent anymore, but recent decades uh, Hong Kong action movies. Yeah, definitely names in Hong Kong cinema that resonate globally. Yeah, but it's interesting to see the connection to Stephen Chow as well, because I would say in many ways, I think Stephen Chow is kind of a modern inheritor of this kind of martial arts action comedy thing Mm -hmm. with with supernatural elements like we see in uh, Mr. Vampire, not so much in the horror vein, but still supernatural fighting comedies. Uh, I'm thinking of his work in Kung Fu Hustle, I think has some, yeah. some some inspiration points in films like Mr. Vampire, it would seem to me. Now, the story on this film came from Ying Wong, who was born in 1968. And I don't know much about Ying Wong, but he's had his hands in a number of really cool looking film projects, uh, both as a writer and a director. 
He uh, wrote the novel that served as the basis for 1983's Bastard Swordsman, and his other credits include Return of the Demon from 1987, which he also directed, 1990's The Swordsman, and an interesting-looking Chinese mummy movie, which said, just based on, um, based on the cover, it looks like it involves like jade armor, like jade burial armor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one, that one also has uh, Ghostbusters in it. Uh, not you know our Ghostbusters, but in general Ghostbusters. Most notably, however, Wong uh, co-wrote the that other earlier important Hong Kong supernatural comedy, Encounters of the Spooky Kind, uh, that starred Sammo uh, Hung in 1980. Okay, well, that one's still on the list for me. Uh, but yeah. I, I feel like we got to get to our star. We've been sort of yeah. uh, burying the lead, as we sometimes do here, because I've just been wanting to talk about Chin Ying Lam. Yes, he plays uh, Master Gao, a.k.a. Mr. Vampire. Um, He's, uh, he's an actor who lived 1952 through 1997, so uh, you know, sadly short-lived, but boy, he, he acted a lot during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the, very much the star of this picture. He's our monobrowed Taoist priest who specializes in the handling of Zhangxi and other various spirits, and he, he has a pretty interesting history. He started out in stunt work for the Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest Studio. He was a personal assistant to Bruce Lee. And then he joined uh, Sammo Hung's uh, stunt team, and the two became friends. He'd done various roles prior to Mr. Vampire, but this was the role that really made him famous. So it should come as no surprise that he played a lot of Taoist priests <laughs> who battled supernatural forces during his career. Uh-huh. I can't even begin to list them all here, but they include all sorts of Mr. Vampire-inspired films, loose Mr. Vampire spinoffs, and the Vampire Expert TV show. So you might consider him in a way uh, repeatedly typecast in a certain type of supernatural horror movie hero role the way like Peter Cushing would have been in the Hammer Horror movies, you know, repeatedly playing this Van Helsing type character. Yeah, even though like we're not even dealing with direct sequels, it's like we want we want that character in our film, even if we call him something else. Who are we going to get to play him? Of course, we're going to get Ching Ying Lam. Though, though he also did, I want to point out, he did. It does look like he did some unrelated and serious roles as well. So, I, you know, hopefully, it balanced out in his career. So, in this movie, they have made a very interesting costuming and makeup decision to give our hero the sort of uh, the unflappable, stern, competent master Taoist priest. Uh, a unibrow, as you, yep. as you said, a monobrow. I guess uh, you could use either term. But I, I was thinking about the meaning of the unibrow in this movie. It wasn't just his natural facial hair. That is that, that is something they clearly have accented with makeup. Mm-hmm. And in American cinema, the unibrow is used exclusively for comedy, right? It's something that's supposed to look funny. And this is a comedy movie, but I don't think Master Gao's unibrow is supposed to be funny. This is a unibrow that signals an eagle-like seriousness, dignity, knowledge. It, it reads to me as a unibrow of respect. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this, and I, I think you're right. It seems to be sternness. I can't really tell how comedic it's supposed to look because it, it doesn't look just ridiculous. It does mm-hmm. look... Like it's part of the costume, it, but but in that respect, it's not as ridiculous as 
is some of the um, uh, the hair and makeup effects that you see in in certainly earlier Hong Kong cinema. Because mm-hmm. you know, if you see you know, various uh, Shaolin type films, you'll see a lot of obvious fake uh, facial hair and you know long hair. Uh, you know, whatever you can do to sort of differentiate one character from another, even if they're played by you know sort of the same troupe of uh, of of, uh, of stunt people. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, the the cultural the valence of a unibrow changes with culture i mean again as we said in in american movies it is something that is always taken as funny but there are cultures where uh, a unibrow or monobrow is considered a desirable trait it's considered very handsome or beautiful to have a single brow yeah it's Uh, definitely gonna gonna range across time and uh and space I think specifically, uh, especially in some like Central Asian cultures, a unibrow mm. is considered very desirable. Yeah. I, now, I was looking around for any indication on what it might have meant uh, to Chinese audiences or if it was a statement on something that was common, uh, you know, among, say, Taoist priest or something. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really find an answer. I mean, you see bushy eyebrows show up in in various uh, Chinese um uh, uh, illustrations and depictions often attributed to gods and immortals. You know, there's a, there's a wise nature to it. Uh, but I, I just couldn't find anything about monobrows other than I did see that our, 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 our priest character in this film is sometimes described as uh, something that is translated as one eyebrow priest. Huh. Well, I'm trying to think how to read that. Does that mean more that it's just a particular trait of this one character or that he is of a type, like the one eyebrowed priest type? I don't know. I mean, it's I wonder if there are other monobrowed Taoist priests in films that are not depicted as an homage to this film, you know? Yeah, Uh, I guess that's an open question. I want to talk about another uh, personal grooming thing that ties in interestingly with the plot, which is that both the monsters in this film and the hero have long fingernails. Yes. Uh, so uh, Qin Ying Lang has these the, the very the long sculpted, well manicured fingernails, but also the vampires do. And the vampires not only have them, they use them to kill, sometimes in lieu of using the fangs to kill. Yeah. Now, in our our past episode on fingernails, we we talked a little bit about um, about long fingernails, uh, of particularly Amanda Chinese scholars uh, in the old days. And one of the characters that came up uh, was a poet by the name of uh, Li He, who lived, uh, uh, I believe, uh, seven ninety or seven ninety one uh, through eight sixteen or eight seventeen C.E. Yeah, he was a Tang Dynasty poet. You, I remember you found some source that described him as like the bad boy of Tang Dynasty poets. He was yeah. he was like a very weird poet who wrote strange, almost this sounds like an anachronistic comment to make, but having read a lot of his poems now, I think it's sort of accurate. Almost uh, psychedelic poetry. Uh, yeah, like talking uh, about what owls burning with goblin fire in the forest, things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, and I think he did have kind of, you know, he had kind of a, uh, you know this bad boy image, this kind of uh, you know he was he was interested in kind of dark and mysterious and magical things. Yes, totally. Uh, but he was also considered morbid, kind of deathly. Uh, for some reason, I'm associating him with connotations of illness and morbidity. And mm-hmm. yet, he he had this very distinctive personal style that definitely included long fingernails. 
The crazy thing, though, is this is not something we realized previously, but I had just looked him up to to make sure I had the right individual in mind. And um, I pulled up the Wikipedia page on him and just did like a quick search for fingernails to make sure that I wasn't you know, misremembering his fingernails. But the Wikipedia article not only mentions his nails, it mentions his unibrow. What? Yeah, apparently he was known for his unibrow, uh, according to this uh, Wikipedia entry. So, <laughs> so again, I've got to ask: is this tap? Is this just a coincidence? Is this tapping a broader cultural meaning in Chinese history of the unibrow, or maybe know. in some way is the is the Taoist priest of the Mister Vampire franchise a take on Li He? I'm not sure. I think it'll have to remain an open question. Just to give a taste of that psychedelicness, I just found a place where I transcribed uh, one of his poems as translated by a, a, a Chinese poetry scholar named David Hinton, uh, mm-hmm. who has a wonderful collection of translations of classic Chinese poetry that I highly recommend. But Hinton's translation of uh, one of Li He's poems called Qi'in Spirit Song, I just want to read a few lines from that. It goes, Black as your puma cat, weeping blood, fox dying a cold death, an opalescent dragon on ancient walls, tail inscribed in gold, then the rain god riding it down into a lake's autumn waters, and that ancient hundred-year-old owl, it's a forest demon now, sound of laughter, emerald fire rising up out of its nest. That's beautiful. I love it. So yeah, serious recommendation in this. If if you're looking for a good uh, collection of translations of Chinese poetry across the ages, David Hinton's book is awesome. All right, well, let's get back to Mr. Vampire. We've 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 discussed Master Gao, and we'll keep coming back to him. But let's talk about his two assistants. So first up, Chao Xing, the handsome one, is played by <laughs> Su Ho Chen. <laughs> That's exactly right. He is the handsome one. I was trying to th- remember what his name is, like the English translation was, because they. In the subtitles, they give them English translated names, or at least one mm-hmm. of them. The the less handsome assistant is named Dan. Yeah, but I forget what this one's name was. But yeah, th- this guy is the uh, the less comedic, more competent, more martial arts competent, and just generally uh, handsome and heroic of the two. Yeah, he and uh, and he's good in this. He um, it's another case though where. Mr. Vampire was so successful that it was, I think, perhaps hard or, or impossible or just, you know, just not reasonable to to try and do anything other than various other vampire films. So Chin went on to do various vampire films that follow loosely in this one's wake. Uh, he did other stuff, to be to be sure, including some important roles in big Hong Kong films like Tai Chi Master and Fist of Legend. And he also starred in the 2013 film Rigor Mortis, which... I have not seen. I think I almost saw it. Like, I, I think I rented it and never watched it. And I'm glad that I didn't now because its whole thing is that it's supposed to be a stylish homage to the old vampire movies, including Mr. Vampire. So I feel like a lot of that would have been lost on me if I just skipped right to the 2013 uh, stylish uh, homage as opposed to, you know, watching at least Mr. Vampire. Yeah, better do it in order. We should watch all of the Mr. Vampire sequels, then do Encounters of the Spooky Kind, then watch Rigor Mortis. <laughs> oh, man, I, th- I think our eyes might be bigger than our stomach on that one. There's so many. Yeah. All right, so that's the handsome one. But then there's also Dan. I, I think his actual <laughs> character's name is uh, Man Cho, I think, but the the, 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 the captions and the, the dubbing refer to him as Dan. Yeah. And he's played by Ricky Hu, who lived... Uh, 1946 through 2011, and this guy is totally our comic relief character, and he's he's pretty fabulous. 
Oh yeah, he he is he's an excellent physical comedy actor. He's got a he's got a very funny haircut in the movie. A kind mm-hmm. of uh, he's got a kind of like one of those sagging bowl cuts that uh, I think is clearly supposed to look funny. And he's the butt of all the jokes. There's a really funny sequence toward the end where he is gradually transforming into a vampire. <laughs> and in order to prevent the transformation, he has to keep doing all these things like lying on a bed of glutinous rice and uh, mm-hmm. continually dancing in a in a ludicrous fashion. Yes. Yeah. Yes. While also having regular freakouts about what's happening to him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's great. He's great. I mean, he's yeah. he's our Droppo. He's this film's Droppo. He's this film's sort of this film's Perico uh, to draw back to the, the the Santo picture we discussed. Well, I was going to generally agree, except I also wonder, is this film's Perico not Billy Lau as why the incompetent policeman? Ultimately, Mr. Vampire is a is a film with broad enough comedy (laughs) to have many pericos or at least two prominent pericos you can have two Uh, characters that are that are performed with a broad physical style of comedic acting that defies all language barriers i hope dan is in all of the mr vampire sequels uh he's 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 actually not he seems to this actor seems to have been successful enough and, and enough of like a comedy star uh that he he reprised it in the in the movie Mr. Vampire 1992, but otherwise he doesn't seem to have um, drunk from the the Mr. V well as much as uh, as some of the other people involved were. He uh, he was in several big comedy blockbusters in Hong Kong back in the 70s and 80s. Now the next star in the movie we should probably mention is Moon Lee, and upon looking at her biography, I was very interested because. In this movie, she plays a very uh, she she is a very passive character. You know, she's mm-hmm. the daughter of the rich businessman who is you know the beautiful daughter who is the object of love by several characters. But it turns out that she actually had a a career mostly doing like stunts and action movies and playing characters who would blow your head off with a big gun. Yeah, yeah. Moon Lee seems to have yeah largely been an action character. While in this one, she's not. You you might be tempted to assume, oh, I guess she's like the damsel in distress, but she's more just the the necessary female for comedic interaction. Yeah, she's not really in distress much. She's mostly like hanging out, hanging out yeah. while other characters just act ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, she does play some good pranks in the movie, though. For example, when uh, when Master Gao and Dan go to a go to English style tea to a tea house. uh to meet with uh, the rich, with her rich father, the businessman, Mister Yam, uh, she pranks them by convincing them that they're supposed to drink their coffee and their cream separately because they're not <laughs> familiar with the conventions of coffee. Oh, and to eat the sugar with the spoon separately. Oh, and yes. then when their father comes back, that's what they're doing, and they look they're they are quite ashamed. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but she did a number of of Hong Kong action movies from the eighties through the the nineties. Yeah, a couple that came up for me, and again, I'm not familiar with these pictures, but Fighting Madam from 87, The Avenging Quarter from 1993. Uh, Yeah, and she was a stunt performer in addition to being an actress. It looks like she ended up doing a lot of, uh, you know, your high-octane crime thrillers where she would play a cop with a big gun who hunts down diamond smugglers or something. (laughs) And in one movie, I found one movie she was in that had a title so good I had to mention it. It's from the year 1990, in which she co-starred with Robin Show. Uh, American audiences might know Robin Show best from movies in the 90s like Mortal Kombat in which he oh. played Liu Kang or Beverly Hills Ninja but you know he's a long time uh, oh, yeah. actor who did a lot of a lot of Chinese action movies and stuff uh, but the movie they were in together in 1990 is called Fatal Termination ooh <laughs> 
Moonley is also in Mr. Vampire 2 from 1986, which uh, makes me think, again, the sequels might be worth a look. Uh, I kind of feel like maybe I'm going to watch all of these sequels if I can get my hands on them. I'm not (laughs) sure, but it might be worth it. Uh, But also I read that – so I I mentioned that she uh, was also a stunt performer. I think at some point, it was either in the late 80s or early 90s, I read that she was uh, seriously injured performing a stunt for some action movie she was in. Like she was supposed to – jump out of a window and then there was an explosion that was supposed to happen in the room she was jumping out of, but the pyrotechnics went off early and she was pretty badly burned, but she, she survived and she's apparently doing fine. Oh, good. All right. We mentioned this next uh, actor briefly, but Billy Lau plays uh, basically the world's worst policeman. Uh, Yes. (laughs) This, uh, this character, what's his character's name again? Why? Why? Yeah. And he's, yeah. Yeah, he he shows up at first. Yeah, he's he he's after uh, the, the the love interest uh, played by Moon Lee, um, but then from there he just he gets involved in the the investigation of vampire related murders and just botches everything. Botches everything he touches. Yes. Uh, so I couldn't wasn't able to find a found a find a birth date for him, but he seems to be still active as of twenty at least of, as of twenty nineteen. He did a lot of comedic action roles, uh, including Eastern Condors from nineteen eighty seven. I think that's a that's a hung production as well. And I think it, I, if I'm if that's the one I'm thinking of, I may be confused. I think that one might be an, an ensemble cast that somehow involves a, a mission to Vietnam. Um, hmm. And then Billy Lau also shows up in a number of vampire movies, including Rigor Mortis. Another tick in that column. Uh, yeah, Billy Lau is way over the top in this movie, <laughs> but he's also he, he's good. He's very funny. Uh, like I said, this is a movie of many pericos. And uh, and you know what? They, they play pretty well together in this. He plays a character with almost every negative characteristic you could imagine. He's just this like dumb, incompetent <laughs> creep. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> All right, the next actor of note, um, uh, Su Fung Wong plays Jade, who we, we, spoiler alert, but we find out she's a ghost. I guess it's pretty clear early on she's a ghost. Oh, yeah. I, but I she's, you know she's from the first, yeah. she okay. Well, she appears being like brought in in the forest in a kind of translucent mist, being being born by these guys in strange... Uh, in strange makeup and then she flies through the air. I think I think it's clear she's a ghost. Yeah. So she's a she's an actor producer born 1962. Was in a number of films including Love with the Perfect Stranger from 1985, Web of Deception 1989, and plus a, it looks seems like a fair sprinkling of vampire and supernatural films. One thing that's funny about her character. So the movie basically has two major supernatural antagonists. One is the main vampire and the other is the ghost played by Su Fung Wong. And these two antagonists kind of are running parallel storylines that are in some cases not even fully intertwined from what I could tell, uh, except that they involve the same characters. Uh, But then also there's a funny thing about, so her, when her true form is revealed by Master Gao toward the end of the movie, she wears some exceptionally not good monster makeup (laughs) that somehow works anyway. It it involves a sort of eyeball and a stalk that juts out of her half-rotten face. Yeah, this what was interesting about this to me is that on one level you look at it and you're like, oh, well, that that didn't they didn't quite pull that off, did they? Mm-hmm. And yet it does kind of work. And it it, it reminds me of the deliberate uh, special effects choices in uh, the, the, the famous Japanese haunted house movie House. Yes. You know, yeah. where there was a deliberate choice by the director to have effects that were I'm not sure how to describe them exactly because I don't want to say shoddy. But almost, I think childlike, like like if if 
if you had only children creating the effects or envisioning the effects? Uh, thinking about the effects in house, I might say in some cases almost kind of stagey, yeah. more like the special effects you would see in a good stage production rather than in a movie. Yeah, that's a that's a good description. So I thought about that, and, and it made me sort of contemplate the sometimes thin line between the imperfect and the and the uncanny. You know, yeah, it kind of okay. comes back to the idea of the hopping vampire. Like on one level, it's ridiculous, but it's also unnatural. It's also uncanny. Yeah, yeah. All right, and, and uh, finally, there there is an actor by the name of Hua Yun who plays the vampire, uh, born nineteen fifty. Uh, I'm going to mention him because he has a hundred. He had a hundred ninety three acting credits, including the landlord in Kung Fu Hustle from two thousand four. Oh, he's the guy with the uh, when it's revealed that he's a kung fu master. Spoiler, sorry. Uh, he mm-hmm. he's got the floppy, rubbery body. Yeah, I think so. It's been a while since I've seen Kung Fu Hustle, but yeah. but, but this guy did stunts in 1972's The Way of the Dragon, starring oh. Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. So he's been in tons of things. Have you seen Way of the Dragon? You know that one? I think I, this is one I probably saw parts of it on TBS back in the day, but I don't have a clear memory of it. Of uh, So, you know, Bruce Lee had this this short but very memorable run of films in the early 70s, maybe the late 60s, too. I think maybe the first one was in 70 or so. Uh, but most of them are, are great martial arts action movies, but they're very serious. Way of the Dragon is definitely the most comedy-oriented of huh. them. It's the one where Bruce Lee travels to Rome. It actually takes place in Italy because he's got a relative – who I think is running a restaurant there that is being menaced by the mafia. And then he comes in to defend it from these, these mafia thugs. And so they end up recruiting their own fighters in, uh, such as Chuck Norris. Uh, huh. So they bring in Chuck Norris to defeat Bruce Lee, but Norris doesn't stand a chance. But anyway, that movie is actually quite silly as well, because like, I remember there's a major subplot in it about Bruce Lee eating too much soup and then having to go pee a lot. <laughs> All right. It doesn't influence his style, though, right? It's not, not really. like, you know, not later on, not we like see like the master. drunken master. Yeah, peepee master. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not peepee master. Okay. Uh, yeah, maybe I haven't seen that one at all. Ma- mainly, I guess the, my, the main Bruce Lee movie I've seen is, of course, Enter the Dragon, which is, is pretty serious. Yeah. One last thing about Way of the Dragon. Chuck Norris playing this villainous fighter, and it has no facial hair, and it's disturbing. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, because he, he is known for the beard and the mustache. Um, normally at this point, I, I mentioned the music. Well, uh, the music's fine in this. It's not like the music is offensive. But the score is credited to one Melody Bank, which I'm 99% sure is not someone's name. I'm thinking it's just like a, a storehouse of music. I don't know. Melody I could be wrong Bank. That, that Melody sounds kind Bank. of like it is a database. Or <laughs> yeah. And there, there are only five films credited to Melody Bank uh-huh. on, uh, on IMDb. Maybe I'm wrong. But the theme music was composed by Alistair Monteith Hodge and California-born Anders Nelson. So if that means anything to you, <laughs> there you go. Now, I guess here we're getting to the part where we would usually go into a full plot breakdown. But I was thinking... We're talking about this today just to mix it up a bit. I I thought maybe rather than going scene by scene in order, uh, I would just sort of lay down the basic plot situation and then we could mention a few things throughout the runtime that Mm -hmm. we thought were interesting. But before I get into that, I did want to mention the opening scene in detail because because the opening scene is fabulous. It really is one of the most memorable things about the movie and it really sets the tone for the movie. 
so after the credits finish, and the credits, by the way, are great just because they have a wonderful green ooze color to them. Uh, but to once we finally open on the action, to someone not familiar with the conventions of Zhangxi movies, as I was not really once I started watching this, it's a very WTF kind of opening. Yeah. Because we have this guy going around who we find out is one of the assistants of the Taoist priest. But he's going around with a bunch of incense in this room that is just covered in magical amulets and, and trinkets and pieces of paper with writing on them. Things that seem like they have magical sig- significance in one way or another. And he is tending to coffins in this room. At first, I wasn't sure what these objects were, but they are these uh, – it's just these rows of horizontal wooden cylinders. You do find out that they're coffins. Yeah, and I was not really – I don't know that I'd really seen – I don't know if I'd seen these before, but these are, are depictions of, uh, of of basically the traditional Chinese style of, of casket, which looks rather different from the Western style. I, uh, it's my understanding you still see both used in China. So if you look up – like do a Google image search for Chinese coffins or Chinese caskets, you'll likely see some pictures that include both styles where you'll see Western variations and then also uh, these these more ornate looking traditional coffins that are sometimes described as having humps. Yeah, the humps or I was actually thinking about it like petals. Like if you look at them end on, they look kind of like a flower with four petals. Yeah. Yeah, they're quite beautiful. Though, of course, I can't help but look at a picture of it and I'm just like, oh, yeah, well, that one has a Western vampire in it. Right. And this one has uh, a Zhang Xi in it. Um, so, and my thinking on that may also be compounded by the, by the fact that I know that there are two or more films in which a Western vampire and an Eastern vampire meet in Chinese cinema. That's worth looking up. Yeah. But I also like that Mr. Vampire does not make you wait to see vampires. It's no. not like you got to get into the, you know, have the, have all the magic unleashed. It's there right from the opening. So while uh, the assistant is going around doing all this stuff, we see Dan messing around with incense. <laughs> uh, he, the, he also uncovers, he like peels back a curtain to reveal a boot camp style lineup of swaying unconscious fiends of some kind. Again, if you don't know the conventions of the genre, you're like, you know, WTF, what mm-hmm. is this? And they're again, they're dressed in this Qing dynasty era clothing with these hats on. And there are yellow strips of paper covered in red writing pinned to their hats so that they hang down over their faces. Yeah, and these are essentially spells that are binding them and keeping them from running amok. Yeah, lo- this movie is to suggest, and I guess this is somewhat historically accurate, that a lot of Taoist magic rituals involve like writing a spell on a piece of paper and then doing something with that paper, like eating it or putting it on something. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess it comes down to the magical use of language. Yeah. And also I I noted that the spells tend to be in, I think every case I can think of in the movie written in some kind of red color, red ink, or in some cases in blood. And Mm -hmm. that made me think that I I do believe it's the case that in broadly in Chinese culture, red is considered a lucky or holy color, right? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, there are obviously all these amulets and everything everywhere. And and Dan is going around with a bunch of sticks of burning incense. And he's he's saying to the corpses in the uh, in the coffins, he's like, "Here's your dinner. Time for din- time for supper." And stuffing the <laughs> incense into the coffins. Uh, oh, and he also makes clear that there's a candle burning in front of all the the Zhangqi lined up with the. Uh, spells over their faces and he can't let the candle go out because if if the candle goes out they will get loose and he makes clear he's like i can't handle all of you so i've got to keep you i don't know what in in a trance or whatever it is 
Yeah, so it's an interesting place to to start, especially again if you have know nothing about the genre, where where you have not just a supernatural element, but this kind of magical containment, ongoing magical containment and management of supernatural entities. Right. They regard these particular vampires that are lined up here not really with utter terror, but more as like something that you know you more like something that you would work with on a regular basis. So you're not mortified by it, but also you realize it could be dangerous if you screw up when you're dealing with it. Right. It's like, like handling dangerous chemicals or something. Right. And so he's going around cramming the incense in the coffins. And then there's, there's a really funny part where one of the coffins, like a skull pops out of it and bites him on the hand. Mm -hmm. Um, So I enjoyed the skull bite, but then there's a good vampire fake out. So, uh, the Dan gets attacked by what you think is one of the vampires. It hops at him and menaces him with fangs. But then, oh, no, it's like a cat scare. It turns out that it's not really him. It's his handsome buddy in a in a <laughs> makeup, I guess, like pranking him. Yeah, and it comes dangerously close to the film mistake of making your fake monster look a little bit too good. Um well, he really does look exactly like the real ones. Yeah. So I, I, I was a little confused when that happened. Uh, but it's not too long, much longer that you have to wait until you see some more vampires and some of them, uh, some more of the Jiangxi that look better, that look more uh, undead. But this this prank, you know, pranks, pranks in horror movies is just a bad idea because it, of course, leads to a, I don't remember exactly how they do this, but through some klutziness, they end up unleashing all of the Jiangxi. Like they mm-hmm. knock the, I think they knock the candle over and then the strips of writing come off of their foreheads and then they start hopping around attacking them. So of course the bumbling students need help from their master. And these two students that the master they work for is played by Ying Lam. This is the, uh, this is master Gao, the hero of the film. And from the moment you see him, you know, he means business. I, this is the moment when I noticed the unibrow when he first comes in and I was thinking like, that's not a funny unibrow. That's a unibrow I respect. Yeah. He's serious and he, he knows what he's doing. Like when he starts fixing the problem, it gets fixed. He's fast. He's deliberate. He's got the moves. Yeah. And speaking of moves, so it turns in this movie has an interesting combination of magic and martial arts. So a lot of what Master Gao does to fight the the vampires is like doing spells and rituals and stuff like that. But other things. But but on the other hand, it's also just like fighting. It's you know kicks mm-hmm. and punches and standard comedy martial arts. Maybe not quite as virtuosic as you'd see in like one of the the comedy action movies of Jackie Chan, but a similar kind of vibe that you know yeah. like funny fighting. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it did remind me of some of the the Jackie Chan films I've seen, where there'll be a really great and inventive use of some sort of a set piece, like a chair. Yeah. There's a, there's at least a little of the of that in this, and I have to admit I'm not I'm not well versed enough in Hong Kong action to know if if what I'm watching in Mr. Vampire is truly great uh, comedy martial arts or if it's just like really good or even mm-hmm. just decent, but it certainly feels awesome uh, when I'm watching it on screen. Like these are these are well thought out action sequences that really zing. Yeah, same here. I I agree, and so there are a lot of funny things to it. Like one of them is that. Uh, actually when master Gao comes in, there's another Taoist priest with him, this guy wearing glasses who is at Mm -hmm. the beginning and the end of the film. And this guy, uh, together they like, I think what they do is they bite their fingers and make them bleed. And then they use the blood on their fingertips to touch the foreheads of the vampires to essentially pause them, like freeze them in place. And I think, Mm -hmm. again, this is because of. Either it's something about the blood or it could have to do with putting the red color on their foreheads. 
Uh, but but it's funny because they will they will have to like pause them and unpause them. So for example, the other priest at one point, one of the vampires is choking him, and he puts the mark on the vampire's forehead, and it freezes the vampire. But now it's frozen, choking him, and he has to wipe it off and unfreeze <laughs> him so that it'll get his hands off of him, and then he can freeze him again. Yeah, there's a there's there's a level of uh, of attention shown to the to, to the the action in a film like this. To, to not even just to say action, but like the physical movements, like every physical movement in one of these scenes is is so elegantly choreographed. It's 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 wonderful to watch. Right, but eventually they fix all the malfunctioning vampires. They fix them with martial arts and magic, and then they send them off with this other priest, the guy wearing glasses. Uh, and I was wondering at the beginning, what did, did this guy like buy a bunch of Jiangxi from uh, from Master Gao? But I don't think so. I think actually he's another priest, and I think what's happening is he is taking them off somewhere to be to be given a proper burial so that they are no longer vampires. Yeah, that was that was what I got from it too. Which, which again, it ties in with what we discussed earlier about the origin of this monster in general. That it it emerges from anxiety and concern over the improper uh, burial or the lack of burial uh, mm-hmm. for individuals, and so it, it makes sense that our Dallas priests here are are they're part of the solution. They're trying to get these folks buried, uh, putting the um, uh, the unruly dead to rest. Yeah, and the, and when he leads them away, like they're hopping. Yeah. They've got the they've got the spells back on their faces, so they're not uh, hopping of their own accord. They're sort of hopping as directed. They're being mm-hmm. obedient now. But other than that, just to give an idea of the main plot situation, so after this, uh, Master Gao is hired by a wealthy businessman named Mister Yam to help with a strategic reburial of Mister Yam's dead father. And the the story is that a perhaps skeevy or perhaps revenge oriented fortune teller has prophesied that if Yam that if Master Yam digs up his father's corpse and buries it in a different place, this will lead to great fortune. And I think uh, this great fortune is to be interpreted as money because he mm. mentions that his business is not doing so well lately. And then it's also worth noting that Mr. Yam has a beautiful daughter named Ting, this is Moon Lee, and then a nephew named Y, who is this guy we mentioned, this odious and just magnificently <laughs> incompetent police commander, yeah. who is also romantically obsessed with his cousin Ting. Yeah. So <laughs> he's he's fabulous. So Master Gao serves as a kind of ritual magic consultant for the reburial process of Yam's father. And unfortunately, once the body is disinterred, Gao notices the telltale signs of vampirism, that his body is fat and fresh when it should have been decomposed. So it ends up being transported to Gao's magical workshop and sealed shut in its coffin for protection and I guess for him to ultimately figure out what to do with it and maybe find a place to bury it. Mm-hmm. But, of course, you know, in a movie like this, no coffin can stay sealed. So the vampire is unleashed, setting off a chain of vampiric infections and transformations. Uh, Mr. Yam gets it first. His father comes to him and vamps him then he goes on a rampage and uh and and so forth and there's this chain of vamp- you know how a vampire movie goes after this yeah. the, the structure is very similar to the vampire movies you know yeah it's like there's going to be cascading effects leading uh, you know uh, emanating out from this master vampire but eventually you're going to have to deal with that master vampire Exactly. Meanwhile, I mentioned there's also this simultaneous plot where the handsome young hero, one of the two assistants, is targeted by a malicious ghost who I think attaches to him after he looks at her tombstone. I believe so, yes. Yeah, I've I've never heard of a a ghost targeting somebody in that way before, but 
but that seems to be what happens. He like looks at her tombstone and he hears a voice. And after that, she's just creeping on him. There's this great scene where he's riding by the cemetery, I think, or he's riding through the woods on a, um, is he on a horse? No, he's not he's on, on a horse. bicycle. He's on a bicycle. Yeah. And she, she like ghost, uh, flies across the forest. Uh, it's a wonder, one of several wonderful wire based, uh, martial arts effects where mm-hmm. she flies through the forest and she, she lands uh, gingerly right on the back of his bicycle. Like, all right, I'm with you now. Let's go. But then he, du- he rides underneath a, a low hanging tree branch and he ducks and then the branch hits her and knocks her off the bicycle. Um, which, which of course reminded me of um, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, where mm-hmm. uh, we have the Lopan, the, the the ghost, the spirit uh, entity, who uh, passes through a vehicle, but then is also, uh, you know, we can see that he can pass through things, but he can also be hit by a truck. Very similar in this film, where this ghost has all these ghostly powers, but she can also just run smack into a tree limb. So I wanted to think for a minute about some of the conventions of of these vampire movies, because so in in Western vampire movies, you've got the tropes that always appear. You've got the things that can be used to defeat the vampire, like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, stakes, crosses, garlic, uh, uh, vampire doesn't show up in a mirror, all those kinds of things. And this universe seems to have uh, similar types of tropes. Like there are things that are used for ritual magical effect against vampires or things that seem to be true of the vampires. And I wanted to try to think about what some of them were. One that I found very interesting was the power of glutinous rice. Yeah. This movie uses uh, uh, Master Gao repeatedly uses sticky rice to ward off vampires or to counteract the effects of a person turning into a vampire when Dan gets vamped. Yeah, I, I I love this part of the film. On the one hand, it makes perfect sense. It reminds me a lot of what we talked about with the use of beans in some cultures as a Adzuki as a way. Beans, yeah, yeah, zuki beans or uh, or other beans uh, in other mm-hmm. cultures used uh, as in a way to to fight back against the supernatural or having some link to the supernatural. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I, I love the idea that that the sticky rice could be utilized in such a fashion. But this film goes even further by by asking the question: Well, what happens when an outbreak? Of, of vampires in your town or city causes um, uh, a, a huge demand for sticky rice. How yes. do the local rice shop owners respond? And in this uh, film, they respond crookedly by cutting sticky it. rice with other <laughs> varieties of rice. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, so there's a commodities demand problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need all the sticky rice to fight vampires, and it turns out regular rice is no good, n- mm-hmm. does not help you at all. It's got to be sticky rice. And so, yeah, there's a scene where a character is sent to the rice shop to get a whole bunch of sticky rice to to fight off the vampire, and an unethical rice shop owner tells his dim-witted son, why don't you mix 30 caddies of uh, of regular rice with the 20 of sticky rice? They'll never know the difference. Yeah. And so uh, – and I think the dim-witted son gets it wrong but still does dilute it. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, that just causes the whole outbreak to get even worse. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely love the use of the sticky rice. We already – mentioned the spells, but um, Master Gao uses a number of different like holy relics and artifacts to battle. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite one that he uses against the vampires is uh, the glowing dagger, uh, the dagger that is made out of Chinese coins. And infused by the power of the moon, right? There's a part where he focuses the power of the moon on it and it makes it glow. Yeah. I don't know what the deal with that is, but I thought that was cool. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I guess, you know, we, we do see some of the similar ideas, like holy elements, elements involving reflections and light, um, 
celestial uh, energy, uh, you know, solar energy in the in more Western varieties. But the idea that lunar energy could be utilized as well, I like that. Yeah, but there here's one thing. I don't know if you picked up on this seeming contradiction. Maybe I just don't understand. But um, so one thing is it's implied that the vampires are blind and that mm-hmm. they can only detect you by hearing you, right? And that was the reason that you could hold your breath to hide from the vampire, because if you're not breathing, the vampire can't find you. Or is it that they smell your breath? Because oh, remember, there's be the it. scene where Dan buys himself a few moments of time to escape, which he you know doesn't use. He just like gloats, I think, for a second. But he yeah. sticks some things in the, the Zhang Xi's nose, in its nostrils. Oh, that's right. And then right. it can't detect him. Maybe it is the smell. Yeah, so for it's either hearing or smell or some combination thereof. Uh, the vampire can't find you if you're not breathing. So characters repeatedly hold their breath for a moment, as the original title says, while the, the vampire is like looking right in their face. Whatever the effect, it's supposed to not be able to see them. But also I've read that it's supposed to be a convention of these stories that uh, the vampires are afraid of their own reflections in a mirror. And I wondered how that works if they can't actually see. So I'm not sure about that. Maybe it's just something that's not consistent in the lore, or maybe I don't quite understand. Well, also the master vampire in this seems to be less limited when he comes back after his first initial defeat. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when he comes back, he looks a bit different. He seems to be looking around with eyes more. He doesn't seem to be as, um, as, as based in scent. So, I, which you know, raises additional questions about exactly how how these 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 beings work, but uh, uh, but but yeah, he seems to come back more powerful. So, generally in Taoist rituals, is the moon considered a holy thing that can ward off evil? Because I remember there's also a part where. Um, when the ghost first appears to try to uh, to seduce the handsome young hero in the forest, uh, the there's a song that is being sung on the soundtrack. And the translation on the subtitles of the song, there was a line that said, who would want a ghostly bride to worship the moon with her? Hmm. I didn't know yeah. quite what to make of that, but uh, well, I mean, the moon has a, has an important roles in Chinese mythology, you know, and is mm-hmm. uh, you know the place of the uh, the elixir of the immortals. It is uh, uh, you know a place where the goddess resides. It is the uh, the place where the uh, where the rabbit lives. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of cool magical ideas about the moon as is not only like an entity but a place. Mm-hmm. In, in in Chinese mythology, whereas I'm not sure that the response that there's as much of, about that with the sun. You know, w- when you think about prominent solar Chinese myths, I mean, obviously the one that comes to mind is the the shooting of the surplus suns out of the sky by the the right. great archer. Uh, but in that, it's like the, the it's more like the sun is an entity or multiple entities that must be dealt with. I'm sure I'm missing something. There's a lot. Chinese mythology is a broad tent, and uh, likely there's some exceptions to this that I just don't have in my head at the moment. I guess we got to wrap up in a minute here, but one more thing I wanted to mention before we did was the excellent jail scene. I love the jail. Oh, yes. So at one point in the movie, uh, Master Gao uh, is framed for the murder of a character. I think it's for the murder of, uh, of Mr. Yam, the wealthy businessman who hired him. And it goes like this. He shows up when the body is found. And uh, why the incompetent policeman is saying, uh, well, he has holes in his neck, so those must have been caused by a gun. And then everybody's like, wait, that doesn't really make sense. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right, Um, uh, because the neck is really torn up. And then he's Mm -hmm. like, well, maybe it was caused by someone who was a martial arts expert who was an expert in the ninefold darts. I don't know what that means, but I tried to look that up, and I couldn't find anything about it, so – 
Uh, maybe I was not using the right search terms. But then finally, Master Gao reveals it looks like these holes were actually made by long fingernails, right? So the the vampire like sticks long fingernails in the victim's neck. And then why the policeman's like, hey, Master Gao, you have long fingernails. You're under arrest. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and then he takes him back to the jail to torture him for information. Uh, but uh, while he's in his jail cell overnight and repeatedly getting his head stuck between the bars, the handsome uh, two of his assistants shows up to rescue him. But then the vampire also comes to life. And then Y is running around causing problems as well. There's a great fight scene. That, that, that whole part was one of the best parts of the movie. I, I agree. But before we go, should we, should we discuss the gorilla scene? What was that supposed to be a gorilla? Okay. Yes. So, I think okay, it was. Okay. Okay. okay we're setting the scene here. At one point, the police, I guess being led by, uh, by why the world's worst policemen are out in the countryside. They've left the city and they're like on a, on a grassy hill and they find a cave opening mm -hmm. and the police go out into the cave opening. I think with their guns drawn, uh, maybe believing that the vampire is in the cave. That That's mm -hmm. one thing that's interesting in this movie. The police are fully on board with the supernatural villain and they're, they're ready to go fight the vampire with guns. Yeah. Say what you will about them. Once it's clear that it's supernatural, they're like, all right, yeah, we're, we're on board. We'll do what we need to do. We'll go, we'll help go find this thing before it gets yeah. dark and it becomes more powerful. But when they go into the cave, chased out by a gorilla. Yeah. Like chased a, a guy in a gorilla suit. Yep. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I haven't really researched it to, or anything as see what what critics have said about it over the years. But, I, but based on just a, a couple of brief mentions, I think this was just included as a gag. It's it's just like mm -hmm. a sight gag of like, what if then a gorilla chased them out of the cave? Wouldn't that be funny? Um, though it it does seem, at least to my you know uh, uh, you know my eyes, and uh, again I'm not familiar with all you know everything that would have been considered like normal within comedy uh, at the time. Like what what makes a normal action comedy in mid 1980s Hong Kong cinema. Uh, like so, maybe this isn't that far out of line to have a, a sudden gorilla gag show up, but it felt out of line. It felt like yeah. like where did that come from? I almost feel like I'm part of one of those those gorilla costume experiments where they're they're checking to see if you're paying attention uh, to the scene. A well deployed random gorilla is a, is a good trick. Yeah, so that scene is just really that's that's a really crazy sequence uh, that that doesn't have huge bearing on the plot no uh, i guess that's the other thing it, it doesn't really connect to any other sequence so you can sort of compartmentalize it as just one of the one of the the police chief's um wacky adventures have you ever seen the movie ape i think it's just called ape it's a bad ripoff of king kong it's just a giant ape movie but the main thing i remember about it it's been a long time since i saw it the main thing i remember is there's a scene where uh, a guy in a gorilla costume just gives the middle finger to the camera for a solid 15 seconds. Oh, I've, I have seen that sequence. I believe there was, um, yeah, there was a, there was an old, uh, film titled it came from Hollywood that, uh, Dan Aykroyd and John, uh, Candy and a number of folks did. And it had mm -hmm. a lot of clips from old films. Um, and they had a whole section on gorilla movies that was, that was pretty fabulous. And I remember that ape. <laughs> I definitely remember that ape. Okay, I think maybe we got to call it there for Mr. Vampire. Yeah, but hopefully we've uh, we've we, we've raised everyone's interest level uh, regarding Mr. Vampire. I, I, it's definitely worth seeking out. 
I, I, I look, I didn't look around much for this. I think there's some, some rips of it out there, but I can't speak to the quality. There have been various DVD and Blu-ray releases over the years. The DVD version is the one that we watched. Uh, we rented it from uh, Atlanta's own Videodrome, uh, the last video rental store here in Atlanta. Uh, but uh, I, I think you can buy copies of it. I think it's commercially available. Uh, and I have seen it on streaming services before, just I don't think currently. But this stuff changes, so who knows? It may, it may become, perhaps there's, and, and it's also possible that there's maybe a Hong Kong cinema-centric service that I'm just not privy to that would be the ideal place to go for your Mr. Vampire and Mr. Vampire related titles. If you do end up watching it, be warned in advance uh, about content. Uh, it's just worth reading about a bit. Uh, there's one thing that came to my mind, which is that there are a couple of scenes in the movie where uh, it appears that real animals are killed on screen. Like there's a chicken and a, and a snake, I think. Yeah. They like use I think it's a dead a, snake for something. Yeah. I, I think I read that they the snake that they used was then made into a soup, uh, which I guess mm. is is partially comforting. But yes, yeah, so be, uh, be, be aware. Uh, but then again, I think... It's a good idea if you're if you're looking at some of these older movies. Um, Just be aware I'm, in general. <laughs> yeah, IMDb IMDb has been pretty uh, good for me recently on selections where. Uh, they have the parental um, uh, guidance section, which I used to just not care about, but especially as a, as a parent, now I care about it. But also in terms of selecting things for Weird House Cinema, it's a great way on at least more well-known films to just ch- to just check in and see what has been flagged. And sometimes it's it's hilariously fun where someone will be like, well, it is implied that a human is naked in this film. It is not shown, but it is heavily implied, so... Beware. Uh, so I love the uh, uh, some of the, the warnings that are just a bit over the top like that. But then you can also, you know, find out if there are, you know, examples of potential animal cruelty or depicted animal cruelty that you just might not want to watch, even if it, uh, you know, even if no animals are harmed. Sometimes you don't want to see the fictional version of something either. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've had good luck with the IMDb uh, parental um, guidance section. Uh, good idea. Use as needed. Use as needed. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close the the coffin on this one and uh, and give it a proper burial. Uh, but who knows? Maybe in the future we we'll be back with more Jiangxi action. Uh, I, I have to admit there is there is at least one title that has been on my list uh, since the beginning of World Weird House Cinema. We may come back to. Weird House Cinema, of course, is uh, our, a, a Friday episode that we put out in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're normally a science and culture podcast, and our core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do a little bit of listener mail on Mondays. We do The Artifact on Wednesdays, which is a short-form episode. But then Friday is Weird House Cinema. And you can find all of this wherever you get your podcast. Just look for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. If you want to get to it quickly, you can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That will send you over to the iHeart Radio um, page for our show. And there's actually a store button on there. You can go there if you want, and you can buy some Stuff to Blow Your Mind merch. And you can actually buy some Weird House Cinema merch now. As of this recording, the only thing available is a button. No, sorry, a sticker or a magnet. But I'm hoping that we get a shirt in there soon. We just have to get some other sort of uh, file for that to work properly. So um, uh, at any rate, check that out if you're interested. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Thank you.
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 